We acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of this land, the Bunurong people, and pay respect to their elders past, present and emerging. We recognise and respect their continuing connections to climate, culture and country. podcast, books, events and conversations with the team at Greater Dandenong Libraries. I'm Robin and in this episode, Lee and April discuss an anthology of short stories, Meet Me at the Intersection, edited by Rebecca Lim. And April has an interview with author and teacher Brendan Murray. Susanna checks in with library staff about their favourite childhood reads and Trent and PJ have some recommendations for books and series to dive into over summer. We also have book reviews from library staff, Gemma and Melina. Hope you enjoy. Hi everyone, I'm Lee and I'm here with April. Hi April. Hi, how are you today? Good, good. And um, so we're going to do a book chat today and I'm really excited because we're going to be talking about Meet Me at the Intersection, uh, which is a collection of memoirs, poetry, short fiction, um, and more by writers uh, who are First Nations, people of colour, LGBTIQA+, or, and or living with a disability. Um, it was released by Fremantle Press in 2018. It's edited by Rebecca Lim and Amberlyn Quaymolina. Um, and and I did a very specific and or when kind of going through, you know, what the writer's backgrounds, because this book is a study on intersectionality. And I suppose for people new to the term, it refers to the ways in which different aspects of a person's identity you can kind of expose them to overlapping forms of discrimination and marginalization. So, for example, you could be living with a disability and be First Nations, or you could be LGBTIQA plus and a person of color. And these parts of yourself bring up unique challenges and scenarios. So now that I've kind of <laughs> given a definition and introduced the book, um, April, what did, what did you think of Meet Me at the Intersection? Yeah, I um I think it, it's a really important book for one, um, one that I think everyone should read. It, it's it's really nice that um, when I was doing some research on it as well that, you know, Amberlynn and Rebecca uh, created or put this book together with barely any funding or limited time, and it was started from a volunteer initiative called the Voices from the Intersection. And from this, they created a combination of short stories, memoirs, poetry, based on lived experiences from authors of diverse backgrounds. So it, I just think it's really interesting. It has a real wide collection of stories and they're quite personal. And sometimes you feel like um, you're getting a, a glimpse into someone's life and, you know, that can be heart-wrenching at times, but it's also really uplifting. 
as well in sections. I think what made it so special is, yeah, in the introduction, Rebecca, you know, calls, um, yeah, calls the book as like she mentions own store, own voices, stories. So stories that are by people who are living on those intersections of marginalization, and that's also just like the significance of the title. Meet me at the intersection. We are meeting them there because they're telling their own stories. This isn't someone imagining what it would be like to to live on these margins. It's we're actually hearing from the people themselves. Yeah, very much um, so. I think that's what makes it, yeah, so so significant and so important. Yeah, I agree. And it, when I was um, doing some reading about it, uh, they created this book with the frustration um, of the exclusion of marginalised voices from literature. And I feel like that's echoed throughout a lot of the stories, you know, um, them feeling excluded or having that lack of representation. But also through this book, um, it's not just about exclusion, it's about how they come together, how um, these stories intertwine and, you know, that's part of the Meet Me at the Intersection as well, which is really nice. So when we're talking about stories, since they are short stories and memoirs, it, it was tricky to narrow down some favourites, but I picked a few that I really enjoyed. Did you have some favourites amongst the book as well? I definitely did. And I think that's expected with a collection like this. Um, one thing we forgot to mention is that this is technically YA. It's young adults. So um, it is aimed at a, um, obviously, going to give away my age, but a younger audience than me. So as yes. expected, yes, um, there were just some stories I connected with more than others. And um, and that's fine. Like some I'm just not the target audience for, and that's totally cool. Yeah, um, I found I, the same. I, yeah, but e even those stories that were, um, like to put it bluntly, like a little bit of a slog to get through, um, I was still trying to put in the perspective of a young adult reading those for the first time and seeing themselves. And I think that's like, yeah, just incredibly special and valuable. And yeah, that's that's why I just really adored this book. Um, I Do you want to talk about your favourite stories and I'll talk yeah, about mine? Or how, how about, do that? Yeah, <laughs> right. I think I'm the same as you. Um, you just found it wasn't so much that necessarily there was stories that were better than others, etc. I just think that some, as a reader, you enjoy the ones that you can relate to more or the ones that you feel a connection with the characters more. So I think these stories were probably the ones that um, perhaps I connected with the most or also um, could really understand what the characters were going through. So the first one I'm going to talk about is by Olivia Muscat, and it was the Harry Potter and the Disappearing Pages. And I just really enjoyed the story partly because, and I'm going to show my age here, partly because I could remember that moment when Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows was being released in 2007. I also lined up at midnight to get the book 
So I could really understand the characters, you know, <laughs> anticipation and excitement about getting the Deathly Hallows because it was a really big deal at the time. So I really felt her devastation at not being able to read the words and not being able to see the story once she got home yeah. and that realisation um, that her disability had progressed. And I just really felt that. And I think Olivia just wrote about it so well about not being seen as only a disability and the stereotypes that society puts on her. And I just think that was echoed in other stories as well. She just talked about, you know, being seen as her and not necessarily as her disability. And I think that's really important. And other stories that I really connected with or I really enjoyed, um, Fragments by Mimi Lee. I thought that was a really interesting story. It explored grief, depression and anxiety. And it, it talked about the expectation to bounce back after tragedy and also the right way to grieve. But she also gives that insight into the importance of talking about mental health and how it can be liberating as well. So I thought that was really important and it was a nice way to end the story because it is quite sad throughout of it. And then at the end, she talks about the liberation. And I think that was really important. And then two more stories, if that's okay. Of course. <laughs> um, I enjoyed Stars in Our Eyes. That was another good one uh, by Jessica Walton. I think it just really highlighted, again, the importance of having diversity represented in literature and media, like in books that we read. Kids shouldn't have to go to a convention like Maisie, the main character, had to, to feel like they belonged. And I love the line on page 106, I felt like I belonged here, just as I was. And every person has the right to feel like that every day, I think. So it was echoed in other stories, that lack of information being freely accessible in the past, but it also showed how far we've come as well, which is really good. And then finally, how to be different. Um, I just really enjoyed the story as well as it questions identity and how opinions of other others can affect who we are. And I really liked the line in that story. I wrote it down, a little passage. Stereotypes are what people fall back on when they don't know about something. Stereotypes feel like knowledge, but they're not. Knowledge takes effort. You have to try to see things as they are. You have to go beyond the general and superficial to the specific. You have to seek out or experience things beyond the confines of the everyday. And I think that's a really clear way to explain stereotypes and also the challenges that the people and the authors in this book were facing. Surprisingly, we had no overlap with our chosen stories so there we go that. so we're going to yeah. show you know a vast experience of stories here yeah. yeah um so in particular in particular i loved um yvette walker's story telephone um and that's the one where she has phone conversations with her future self or her past self depending on which perspective you look at and it was um yeah it was like one of the characters got this the younger character got this call um yeah just randomly on 
on her phone from a um, LGBTIQI, uh, LGBTIQA plus um, like helpline, and she didn't really even know why that was why why she was getting that call. But yeah, it was from her future self, and I loved that. Um, and yeah, I just thought that was so so well written and just like a little bit of a bizarre approach to the story. And um, I did write down that if anyone is, if anyone else enjoyed that story, um, seek out probably my favorite collection of short stories from this year, um, Paige Clark's She Is Haunted. Um, Paige is a Melbourne writer and has a similar, somewhat like bizarre approach to short storytelling that is still really meaningful. As well as that story, I really loved, of course, Alice Pung's um, story, The Last Stop. Um, Alice is well known for novels such as Lorinda and 100 Days. Um, the story was one of the last ones about a Chinese school student who won a trip to China in a competition. And then he had to travel with these two like white academic students who knew a lot about Chinese culture and um, Chinese history, but just like did not engage with the location and the people and the food and like just just were like they like studied it, but then when they were actually put in that situation, they were just really uncomfortable. And um, but the main character, yeah, it just seemed like he learned a lot about his homeland in these subtle ways and I think it said a, a lot about like the complexities of living in the diaspora and you know how you see yourself across your different homes um, and yeah Alice is an amazing writer so it was no surprise that I really liked that one mm. um, and one other one I really liked which was a bit shorter um, was from Kyle Lynch Kyle's a um, from the Wongi language group from the um, and he lives in the Kurawang Aboriginal Christian community um, in Western Australia and he wrote just about this character trying to find a job and it was a really like um, it was just a really beautiful story but it really illustrated the difficulties of being young, not having your own transport, living a long way from towns, living, you know, in areas where towns are really far from each other and you're relying on your parents and their schedule to give you a lift. You're relying on your auntie to help you with your resume. Like all these things are so. Um, it was very so it, relatable. It, it was, it was relatable. Yeah. I, mm. I, you know, I, I related to it because I remember walking from like when I was young from like Hallam to Berwick, um, you know, handing in resumes and, you know, it's it's a struggle finding a job. And it was a struggle at that time, but I wasn't living on these intersections that Kyle lives on and mm -hmm. I was all that the character lives on. Um, you know, I had a lot of privileges and yeah, my struggle was not having transport and not having like parents to drive me, but that's nothing compared to you know the the kind of complexities that this character was 
um, was facing. And yeah, so I really enjoyed that one because it was relatable, but also not like, like you could see the difficulty, but then you could see how those difficulties just became even more difficult in those circumstances. Um, yeah. You know, he's relying on his auntie, but his auntie's rushed off her feet working and can't really help him. And, you know, he's relying on different family members to give him lifts into town. Those towns are a long way away. Um, everyone has different you know, schedules. It was, it was just really beautifully written. And I, yeah, I really loved it. I loved so many stories in this collection. I know um, it's hard to pick at times, but yeah, I, when you talk about those stories as well, I'm like, yeah, I really enjoyed them too. And then yeah. it's just hard to narrow down, I think. I wanted to talk as well about the um, the artwork on the front of the book too, in the back of the book. There's yeah. some really um, beautiful description of it at the start of the book as well. And, you know, they talk about how each element of the art represents something for example, the circles are the voices of the marginalised people in Australia, beginning in the centre with the voices of the first peoples and flowing out from there to other marginalised people in this land. And it gives that real description of the artwork. But I think imagery was throughout. The, the writing, is it's beautiful throughout this book and it really creates the scenery and sets the atmosphere. Uh, for example, in The Other Sun, the description from the author of the family and the funeral, you really feel their grief and the the awkward tension created through being seen as an outsider. I just think throughout the imagery within the stories was really beautiful, but the artwork at the front, it's sort of the first impression you get of the book and it's a really great one. It is, yeah. And I love that, yeah, those First Nations stories and it's reflected in, in the order of how the stories are presented. The First Nations stories do come first mm. and they are told first. And I think that's really special. The artwork we should mention is by Amberlyn Quaymalina, um, yes. who I found out five minutes before this interview um, is the uh, child, of one of the children of Sally Morgan, who wrote um, My Place and a whole bunch of other like incredible, incredible works of literature, but also um, uh, lots of great kids books in our collection as well so yeah that's that's our little book chat about meet me at the intersection um thank you for joining me and chatting with me about it april no worries i really enjoyed the book and i highly recommend it to our patrons yeah so we have multiple copies in our ya uh collection and yeah next time you're in the library come and ask us about it Thanks, April. Thanks, Lee. Hi, everyone. I'm Lee, and I'm part of the programs team here at Greater Dandenong Libraries. This summer, our classic summer reading club has rebranded to The Big Summer Read. It's open to all primary school age children and there are heaps of great prizes to be won. You'll also find a packed school holiday program on our website featuring chocolate making, gymnastics and more. 
Libraries After Dark also returns for a summer series from early Jan with cross-stitching, jewellery making with electric wires, painting like Picasso classes, and short film nights. Everything is free, but spots are limited, so be sure to sign up on our website, greaterdandenong.vic.gov.au forward slash libraries. Next up, we have April's interview with author Brendan Murray. Hi, my name is April, and I'm here today with award-winning author and accomplished teacher, Brennan James Murray. Welcome, Brennan, to the Open Book Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. No worries. Brennan's non-fiction novels include The Drowned Man, Venom, and his latest book, The School, The Ups and Downs of One Year in the Classroom. Brennan, can you begin by telling us a little about yourself? What inspired you to become a teacher, a writer, and what inspired you to write The School? So the writing thing came first. I've always wanted to, I've always loved writing. I was one of those little kids who was always writing stories and giving them to my parents and my teachers and and stuff like that. And along the way, I kind of had this idea that, well, wouldn't it be great to be an author and, and, and have a book out there? Um, so that's always been sort of a part of who I am, I guess, uh, written expression and, and really enjoying that. Um, but there was always, I suppose, that that kind of awareness that um, it's quite hard to, to make money as a writer and, and that, that remains true. Uh, Very so true, yeah. I, I eventually decided that a, a good way that I could incorporate a lot of those same passions in, into my working life was by becoming a teacher. Um, and I think a lot of people kind of go on that journey when when they do an arts degree or, or if they're passionate about something in the arts. Um, but I very quickly discovered that I absolutely loved teaching far, far more than than I ever ever thought I would. Um, really, I think because of because of the kids and and the connections that I formed with the kids. So while I was teaching, I, I was still writing on the side as a bit of an escape, I suppose, or or, or some a, a way to sort of keep balanced. Because I think as a teacher, it's it's easy to have like a, not a very balanced life and and just be doing teachery stuff all the time. But then a, a publisher asked me if I'd be interested in in writing a book about teaching. This was after I'd written two other books that were nothing to do with teaching, and and initially I said no, I didn't want to for for a number of of reasons. Um, but then after about a year, it was about a year after she raised that possibility with me, I thought, well, actually, no, I do have something to say about teaching and I've probably been doing it long enough that I feel like I'm in a position to, to comment and, and that's how I ended up writing the school. That's fantastic. And I think a lot of the readers will connect with the book and, you know, their own experiences with schooling and perhaps their children as well. So I think it's a very relevant and important novel to read. Um, Brennan, what do you hope readers will gain or understand from reading the school? I think first up, just as a writer, I hope um, I hope readers will have a really engaging, entertaining reading experience. Like that's always important for me because I think the stories in there, the kids that I've I've spoken to and and who've sort of opened up to me and, and shared their stories are are really I find them fascinating anyhow. Um, a girl, for example, who grew up in Kenya and had some extraordinary experiences there. A, a boy who's 
was diagnosed with cancer twice before he even reached sort of the middle years of high school and and their reflections on that. So it, it's engaging the the I suppose the reader, but also I want people to see that that young people are are amazing because they they do. It, it sounds like a cliche, but it's true. They get such a bad rap. I often, when I tell people I might meet someone new and tell them that I'm a high school teacher and you often get that reaction of like, oh, my God, you know, yes. how could you do that? Yeah. <laughs> like as though I'm a prison guard or something. Yes. Um, but it's it's lovely that you can paint this new light and give that understanding of a whole person and, you know, all their ambitions and what you do as a teacher. Well, I hope so. I hope, um, I mean, teachers already know it. And I suppose for maybe non-teachers, making them see that teenagers, they're not just that kid with the hoodie and their head hung down looking at their mobile phone on the train. There's That might be the surface that you see, but but there's so much more going on underneath and, and so much more, as we all know, in terms of that experience of, of growing up and, and what it means to, to grow up and, and become an adult. Um, so there was that. Also, I want people to see what teaching today is really like what what it's like to be a teacher and, and a student in a, in a modern school because I think there's still a lot of misconceptions around what school's actually like for those who who don't work in them or who aren't students. Yeah that's very true and I think you really give that insight to your readers which is fantastic. Oh, thanks. So what do you feel has been your biggest achievement from your career as a writer? What are you most proud of? In terms of, I suppose, it, I guess as a writer, you, you do enjoy a bit of validation of some kind, you know, someone other than your mum saying, I liked that book. Yes, um, getting published mom. for one, I'm sure yeah. was a big achievement. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yes. Um, so The Drowned Man won, was the joint winner of um, the Ned Kelly Award for Best True Crime, which that was a really, really big moment, a really important moment that I reflect mm. on. Um, but I think that the main achievement is, and, I, and I'm, this has been particularly so with the school, is when people who you don't know, members of the public, will reach out to you on social media or whatever and thank you for something that you've written. And I think so I wrote in the school about there was a period when I was in primary school where I didn't go to school for nearly a whole year Um whether it was sort of, it was never diagnosed, but it was probably like a childhood anxiety, depression type thing. And we see kids like that who refuse to come to school. Um, and I've had a number of um, parents from all, all across Australia who've contacted me specifically about that part of the book because they have a son or a daughter who is not going to, to school and is going through a similar thing. And they've sort of said, you know, just to see that someone who did go through that as a kid but came out the other side and as, as a happy, healthy adult, that, that that sort of reassured them. So that's actually been probably one of the, the most fulfilling or gratifying things that, that I think have come out of anything that I've written. That must be lovely. And it must be lovely to get that feedback from your readers as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I guess it's that thing of, I suppose, about just being open and honest and talking about mental health issues, for instance, mm. like, you know, you don't, well, there's often not even an opportunity to come out and say, well, hey, when I was a kid, there was a whole year when I didn't even go to school and I don't really know why. Um, so having the ability to to get that story out there and, yeah, it was, uh, that was really gratifying. 
Mm, that's lovely. Thank you, Brennan. Um, and now, what is next? So what plans do you have for your next novel? Tell us all about it. Well, the this is the legitimate truth at the moment is that I have no plans for, for what I'm <laughs> So no write. plans at the moment. That's fine. Well, I've, so we've got a four-month-old at home, uh, yep. our, our girl, Matilda. So I'm very much focused on obviously being a dad at the moment. That's fair enough, yes. Um, and writing is is a big time investment, of course, as much as I love doing it. Um, yep. So probably what I'm what I want to do is just be writing some some shorter stuff. Um, I wrote a piece recently um, for the Griffith Review about the fact that the education minister. Um, uh, Alan Tudge uh, blocked me and a whole heap of other teachers on, on Twitter. Yeah. Because, uh, well, for for some very bizarre political reasons, basically. So I wrote, wrote a piece about that. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping to do do more writing about education and and maybe some short stories and stuff like that. Again, I'm still really interested in education and and that process of growing up and and childhood. So writing on those types of themes, I think. Fantastic. So uh, you plan to stick to non-fiction rather than fiction books? Um, I in- I definitely enjoy writing fiction um, and probably like short stories, uh, they will be fictional, I think. Um, but, yeah, look, I, I would love one day to write a novel, um, whether or not, like whether now is the time that I'm that I'm ready to do that or not, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Yeah. Um, but I think non nonfiction is my strength at, at the moment, definitely. Fantastic. Well, Brendan, finally, what do you love to read? What book recommendations would you give to our listeners today? So the, uh, I suppose, again, it comes down to that thing of, like, what do they like? Like, is it fiction, nonfiction or whatever? But I'm going to say, well, I'll say two authors if I can. Yes, of course. <laughs> give as so, many as you would like. The okay. more recommendations, the better. Well, we could be here a while in that, yeah. in that case. Okay, but, well, limit it. Limit yeah. it down to five. <laughs> well, I'll just – so, well, I'll, I'll run through a few. So I write in the school about teaching Peter Carey's short stories. Yeah. Yep. So I, I couldn't be asked that question without mentioning Peter Carey's Peter short Carey. stories. And there's a very exciting book, uh, Pete – part in the book where you have a special thing happen with Peter Carey. I won't give it away, but that's very exciting as well. Yeah, and I think the part of the book that you're referring to it, again, it shows what happened there shows like how kind and how amazing young people are because it was really the students that that made that thing happen, again, I yes. suppose, without giving too much away. Yeah. But, look, he's written great novels, but I just think you don't hear people talking about his story, short stories that much and, and they're amazing. Yeah. The other one that I've been teaching lately that that I just I can't believe how good it is and I wish I'd found it sooner is, again, short stories. I've got a bit of a thing for short stories, but by a Canadian writer named Alice Munro who won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2013 and she just writes these beautiful, amazing stories about seemingly ordinary people in, in rural Canada and when you read the stories at first, or certainly the kids at first, are like, wow, not much happens in this story. But then when you think about it and, and you dig a little bit below the, the surface, you realise that there, there are these really profound messages about who we are as, as people that are messages that are kind of 
don't don't rely on culture. You know, no matter where you are around the world, you can relate, read these stories and, and relate to aspects of them, I think. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Peter Carey, Alice Munro, um, the one of my favourite novels of all time, and th- then I'll stop, but the one I always recommend to people is uh, The Old Man in the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. Yeah, a classic. Yeah, I absolutely love. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, there's just so much amazing stuff out there. I think sometimes recommendations are dangerous because you recommend stuff to people and then they're like, oh, that sucked. I didn't like that. (laughs) It depends on the person, I guess. But it's always good to hear what other people are reading because sometimes it makes you think outside the box and try something new, which we really love to encourage our patrons to do. Definitely. And one thing I can say as a teacher, I often get asked um, about teenagers, like, oh, how do I get my my teenager reading? And, of course, there's all these great young adult books like The Maze Runner and all that sort of thing. But the thing that I've found that teenagers absolutely love, uh, and a little bit controversial perhaps, but they absolutely love true crime. It, it, wow, that's really interesting. If you've got a teenager who hates reading my advice would be try them on some true crime because in my experience they just devour it and that's the one thing I've seen them sort of get like really obsessive about and be like oh Mr Murray have you got more books like that and yeah well that's a really good tip thank you Brennan I'm sure that a few parents will take that on board as well um so Brennan we just wanted to say thank you for joining us today on the open book podcast it's been a pleasure chatting with you no thank you so much I've really enjoyed chatting with you as well I love um I love libraries and and what libraries offer to to society and and I don't think we talk about that enough so yeah hats off to you guys for the for the service that you offer thank you Brennan and to our listeners you can borrow all of Brennan's novels including the school with the city of greater Dandenong libraries go to our library website to place these fantastic books on hold Next up, Trent and PJ have some recommendations for summer reading. Hi there, and welcome to a special segment of the podcast. We've got some summer reads for kids. So parents, if you're listening, or kids as well, if you happen to be listening to our podcast, we've got some amazing books to recommend for you throughout the summer holidays. Also join our big summer reads so you can win some prizes along the way. So firstly, I've got some recommendations from our lovely staff, PJ. We've got the Bad Guy series by Aaron Blaby. And if anyone's a fan of Ando, this is a great series. It's hilarious, really well written. And while it's called The Bad Guys, uh, I wouldn't say that they're so bad. I've read a few of them myself. They usually save the world in some way, so they end up being the good guys. It's a really good series, hilarious, and it's sort of got a graphic novel style. So it's good for sort of early readers. It's still a chapter book, so really, really look out for that one. Amazing. We've also got The Bum Trilogy by Andy Griffiths. This is a really good series written before he started with the Treehouse story series. So if you read 13-story Treehouse, 26-story, all those, I'd highly recommend the Bum Trilogy, which we've got The Day My Bum Went Psycho, Zombie Bums from Uranus, and Bumageddon, as well as a bonus book, What Bumasaur Is That? So look out for the Bum Trilogy by Andy Griffiths. We've also got a selection of folk tales, which covers stories such as fairy tales, mythology, and other traditional stories from all over the world. So if you like your monsters, your heroes, your gods and magic, this is a great series for you. I personally love the folktales because it gives us some insight into different cultures from all around the world, some ancient cultures, stories that would have been told around a campfire, all sorts of things like that. 
We've also got some science experiment books, so if you want to try your hand at a few experiments, we've got Science in a Jar by Julie Garstecki, Super Science Experiments, Outdoor Fun by Elizabeth Snoke Harris, and More Hands-On Science, 50 Kids Activities from CSIRO. And that's got a few authors for that one, so maybe you want to try some experiments over the holidays. We've also got a lovely story called Pax, The Journey Home, which is actually the second book in a sequel, in a series of books just titled Pax. And it's about a friendship between a boy and a fox, and it's told from the perspective of both. And so this will appeal to animal lovers and those looking for a story about love, loss, and finding new homes. So I highly recommend that one. Thanks, PJ. There's some great recommendations. I've also got some recommendations on my own. And looking through what we've got, I'll just touch on a few. We've got The Babysitter's Club. So parents, you might remember that series. We've got it uh, reprinted for the modern age. So maybe have a look at that one. We've also got a series called Our Australian Girl, which covers girls from different parts of history in Australia, from 1808 right to 1983, and there's nine different girls. So maybe have a look out for that at Spring Bell or Dandenong Library. If you like some graphic novels, I'd highly recommend Bone. And parents, even though you think it's got pictures and looks like a comic, some of these books are so well written that they actually win awards of their own. And this one, 11 awards because of that. It's over a million sold of Bone by Jeff Smith. It's got some amazing artwork. The main characters look like sort of white ghosty cartoons, almost Smurf-like. But then the humans are so well detailed. The artwork in this is absolutely fantastic. It's amazing. I'd also recommend the Rangers Apprentice series, which has been running for a very long time. I don't even know. I wish I could have read these myself. Unfortunately, I haven't gotten around to it. With book one, The Ruins of Gorlan. It looks like a really amazing series and very popular that it's written four different series within that series alone. One that I really do like is Lemony Snicket's series of unfortunate events. These are amazing books and I think would highly improve your vocabulary if you have a look at them. And once you've read the books, go and watch the series. It's amazing. We've also got a couple of other titles. We've got Oliver Jeffers, Here We Are, which is a picture book, but one that I would really recommend because I absolutely love Oliver Jeffers' writing style as well as his drawing. He illustrates and authors in his books both. And this one is about planet Earth as well as what's outside Earth. Maybe you want to do some treasure hunting or puzzle. You want a puzzle book. So we've got Treasure Hunt House by Kate Davies. And that's got about 500 flaps and different puzzles to solve throughout the book. Really good. It's an amazing book, that one, as well as others if you look in the humor section. We've also got a book called Amazing Magic Tricks by Chris Stone. So if you want to confound and astound your family, have a look at Amazing Magic Tricks. You might have a lot of fun with that one. Maybe learn some new things along the way that you didn't know if you've already started on your magic journey or start, start it now. If you haven't joined, don't forget to join the Big Summer Read. Come along down to the libraries, have a look at some of these books as well as a whole lot more. We hope to see you at the libraries during the summer holidays. Have a great one. This is Trent. See you later. And now, Susanna relives some favourite childhood reading memories. Hey, my name is Susanna and I'm an information librarian at City of Greater Dandenong Libraries. Ah, childhood. Those carefree, fun-loving days where summers seem to stretch on forever. Icy poles, the smell of chlorine from the local swimming pool in my hair, fish and chips by the beach, 
watching videos from the video store or the library on the old VCR, running through the sprinkler in my bathers, watching funniest home videos, Agro's cartoon connection, video hits, rage and young talent time, eating an ice jam donut, playing cricket on the school oval, the smell of sunscreen on my face and arms, talking to friends on the landline, do you remember those? The telephone cord spiralling around the corner all the way down the hallway Hello. into Hello. my bedroom with the door ajar uh, just yeah. for some privacy. Go away. These were the summers uh-huh. of my youth. And even though some of those things may not resonate with you and maybe your childhood was spent in a different environment, some of those things are the sights, sounds, smells and tastes of an idyllic Australian childhood in summer. Growing up, there are certain books and themes that can stay with us for life. I remember reading Paul Jennings' Round the Twist books at Dandenong Park. I had a real affinity with Judy Bloom's books when I was growing up. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Was an eye-opening and scandalous book for teens. My mum wasn't very happy that I used to read them. (laughs) For myself personally, I had read this by the time I was 10 years old. Some of these books had a heavy influence on me and my peers. I always loved Lucy Maud Montgomery's Anna Green Gable series. I could relate very much with the protagonist, the freckle-faced romantic dreamer Anne Shirley. I had read all 15 books by the time I was 15 years old. And even though the books were set in the early 1900s, they were still very relatable to a growing girl. It was every young girl's dream to grow up and marry a Gilbert Blythe type. In 1986, the author Anne Matthews Martin... (laughs) published a series of books aimed at pre-teens called The Babysitter's Club. 213 <laughs> novels, including spin-offs and super special editions, were published up until the year 2000. As a pre-teen growing up in the 90s, The Babysitter's Club was extremely popular and owning a copy of the books was seen as a bit of a status symbol. The franchise also spawned off a board game edition, TV show, movie and more recently a Netflix show. Amongst friendship groups, you were either a Christy, a Stacy, a Claudia, or a Marianne. Personally, my favourite was Stacy, the club treasurer, who, although she was only 13 years old, had the maturity and dress sense of a modern woman of her 20s. There were just so many books, so many authors, and so many book series that I loved when I was growing up. So I thought I'd ask some of my librarian colleagues what their favourite childhood books were when they were growing up. Here's what they said. You can always count on me and I can count on you. Do you remember Bases Club, Jackie? I do. That's how I remember the words to that little jingle. Yeah. And what was it about Bases Club that you liked? Everything. I love those books so much. I started reading the little Karen books first and then I graduated to the Babysitter's Club. Yeah, I remember the Karen books. They were like a spin-off, weren't they? They were. Yeah, yeah. and um, and who was your favourite babysitter? I think Claudia. Yeah? Yeah. Why's that? Because she liked snacks. <laughs> and I was arty as well. She was the arty one. Yes, plus she also had a good fashion sense. She did. She yep. did. She yep. did. Mine was Stacey. Oh, no, yes. They were, they were best friends, weren't they? Yes. After Stacey moved from New York. Who was the one that had the boyfriend from Kentucky? 
Marianne. That's right, it was. And who was the leader? What was her name again? Christy. Um, yep, that's right. And do you remember the TV show as well? Yes, I had them mm-hmm. on VCR. I had them on video and I used to play them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, over and over. Me too. Yeah. Me too. And then there was that movie from 1995. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I remember that. Me too. And then there was like a board game as well. I had the board game. Me too. I've <laughs> still got the board game. <laughs> Trent, what was your favourite childhood series growing up? The series that I liked the most and I kept up with it pretty much every time a new book was released is a series called Redwall by an author called Brian Jacques. Unfortunately, he has passed away since. I probably got up to about oh, 13 of his books. I think there's about 20 of them out to date. Um, my favorite of them being Mossflower. It is a series about animals, anthropomorphic animals. So they're all talking and doing their things and very medieval, um, very, very Western European type setting. Swords, not there's no magic, which is different for me. I like my magic, but that one didn't have any. Um, but one of the things that I recall the most is the cooking, the recipes, the, the feasts that they used to have at what was the Abbey called Redwall, that's the, um, where the title came from. So all these sort of nice creatures like mice and um, otters, hedgehogs, even some birds, they all lived in the in the abbey, whereas then sort of the evil animals were like cats and weasels, and then the most heroic or the most legendary were the, the badgers, which lived in the desert. Sounds a bit like the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. It sort of would have taken its cues from some of that, mm. that sort of sense of adventure, but it was located all within one world, um, with different sort of biomes, I guess, but it was just... Oh, I always wanted to be a badger when I grew up. Sort <laughs> Who of the, doesn't want to be a badger? <laughs> the, the, the badgers in Redwall were some of the most legendary um, heroes, I guess, that they, they were always looked um, up at. But then so were the hares. The hares were another sort of heroic species um, where they were known for their sort of agility and quickness in, in combat, whereas badgers were known just to survive just about every hit that they took, um, but also very noble, very kind-hearted. I have two two questions for you, Trent. Yep. How old were you when you started reading them, and would you read them again now? I started reading them when I was about seven or eight years old. So that was my grade three in 93 now, I look back. Um, and if I had the time, I think I would definitely want to revisit them again, probably just for the recipes. They actually did release an entire cooking book of wow. um, recipes of Redwall. That so sounds look out awesome. For that. Hi, I'm Alison, and when I was a kid, one of my favourite book series was Animorphs, written by K.A. Applegate. It revolves around five main teenage characters, Jake, Tobias, Cassie, Rachel and Marcus, and one alien character called Axe, who gives the teenagers the power to morph into any animal they touch. Together they use this ability to fight a secret alien infiltration of Earth by a parasitic race of aliens called Yurks that look like giant slugs. These aliens would take control of the human race by entering the brain and merging with it. I love the excitement of the books and how one would focus on a different main character. It was written in such a way that you could almost believe that the story was actually happening in real life. My favourite character was Jake, who was seen as the leader, mainly because his main animal morph was a tiger, 
which is one of my favourite animals. Animals was also turned into a successful TV series and it has been announced that the books will be turned into a movie in the near future. Finally, we have two title reviews from staff members Gemma and Melina. Hello, my name is Gemma and I'll be reviewing the book entitled Girl Transcending by AJ Clementine. AJ is a 25-year-old content creator and LGBTQ advocate from Melbourne and in her memoir, she talks about her journey towards embracing her identity as a Filipino-Australian trans woman. As a content warning, her book does discuss gender dysphoria, queerphobia, racism and mental ill health, so just keep that in mind. As a child, AJ describes a sense of knowing that she was a girl, but not having the knowledge or language to express this. This changed when one day in high school, her teacher in English class passed her a newspaper clip about a famous transgender woman from Germany who underwent gender confirmation surgery. Despite finally having a word to explain her experience, trans, AJ wasn't ready to accept that she was a transgender woman due to the transphobia she had witnessed in the media and at school. This led her to feeling trapped as she was unable to accept that she was trans and because of this she was also unable to move forward and become the woman that she was destined to be. Fortunately, she did grow more comfortable with her transgender identity over time and was able to begin the process of socially and medically transitioning. Now, even though she still has some tough days, she's really proud of the woman she's become. After becoming more comfortable in her transgender identity, AJ also learned to appreciate her cultural heritage, being a biracial woman, having a Filipino mum and a white father. Growing up, she witnessed her mother facing racism and she became aware more generally of how white culture treats Asian people. As AJ felt she was able to pass as white, she said she played down her Filipina heritage in order to avoid facing racism herself. Over time though, she was able to become more comfortable with her heritage and this journey was complex, but some factors that led to this included having positive representation of Asian women in the media and having people in her life that celebrated their own cultural heritage. While most of the book focuses on AJ's own lived experience, it also includes educational segments about LGBTQ issues and mental health. Overall, this book is fantastic as it provides the language and representation for young people to understand themselves and navigate their journey to embracing their identities. It's a great book for any young person who's exploring their sexuality or gender identity or for anyone wanting to learn a bit more about what it's like to grow up trans and biracial in Australia. If you'd like to read AJ's book, you can place a hold on it in our catalogue. Hi, my name is Melina and I'll be talking to you about a book I just finished reading. Whimsical, Hypnotic, Mysterious, Enter the World of the Forest of Wool and Steel by Natsumi Ashita. As he presses down on the keys, the scent of warm earth and whispering leaves rises up in my mind, drifting from beneath the open lid of the piano. As a student, Tamura hears a tuner working on his school's piano in a gymnasium and his life is changed forever. The first notes conjure images of 
forests rising among mountains, and an uncertain future suddenly crystallizes. Tamura knows he must become a master piano tuner as well. This begins his life's journey, chasing the skills of creating a perfectly balanced instrument tailored to its player. Despite Tamura's self-doubts and even desperation, this story shows the astonishing possibilities of chasing a dream with all of your heart. Rather than having innate talent for knowing pitch, brightness or tone, Tomura works hard to gain the trust of three master piano tuners and studies under their guidance. The story follows their relationships, as well as the lives of the clients whose pianos they attend to, from young learners and occasional hobbyists to concert performers and dedicated musicians. The Forest of Wool and Steel is translated by Philip Gabriel, who has also translated several Haruki Murakami novels into English, so you can be assured that the writing flows effortlessly and is beautiful and descriptive. In addition, it is also lovingly illustrated. Each of the five parts begins with a drawing of a grand piano. As the novel progresses, the drawings are filled out, echoing Tamura's growth. Magically, leaves begin to stir and vines grow, until the piano sits in the glade of a pine forest. This novel won the 2016 award for the book which Japanese booksellers most like to hand sell to customers, and has sold over a million copies. It was also adapted into a film of the same name. At 215 pages, The Forest of Wool and Steel is a short and gently paced novel, perfect for immersing readers into another person's life for a short time. Whether you have lived your whole life around pianos, or know nothing at all, like our protagonist at the start of the book, this novel is sure to captivate. If you have read and enjoyed the writing of Haruki Murakami, you will definitely love reading The Forest of Wool and Steel. You can borrow a copy in English or in Vietnamese from the Greater Dandenong Library's collection. Happy reading! Thanks for listening. You can check out the show notes for more information on all the items we mentioned in the podcast, and you can place holds on them via the Libraries Victoria app or at our website, greaterdandenong.vic.gov.au forward slash libraries.